0: Out of Austin, Texas, you're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean.
1: Hello. Trying to get some people in here. So if you'll bear with me, I'll just invite some folks. Hey Josh, how's it going? We are gonna take calls tonight. I hope you know that. A little bit later. Maybe just to discuss Occam's Razor. It's all you. No, it's not. That's not what you mean to overlap that way. Okay, so that's it. That's, that's the end of that intro. Um, so we have invited all the people, we have tweeted all the tweets, we've done all the promo, and we have Joshua with, Joshua with us tonight, and we've decided that we're going to take calls, hopefully. I'm going to start reading, just a skosh late tonight, four minutes in. Um, we'll be reading Occam's Razor, Chapter 12 of uh, Sam Cooper's Willful Blindness i'll just start now occam's razor the law enforcement officers i interviewed told us agencies so rather us agencies including the rcmp and canada border services agency were aware of investigations in china concerning kevin sun and a suncom executive But despite this, SUNCOM was incredibly active in BC land deals, and I later found through multiple sources with direct knowledge that after BC's government cracked down on offshore investors, the SUN network was quickly expanding into Toronto land deals. On a dead-end street that ran to the forest edge in a Vancouver neighborhood, Jason Edward Lee was found dead in his car's trunk. The young Canadian Chinese money mule had been gambling with his life for a while. He traveled between China, Las Vegas, and Vancouver, maintaining his gambling addiction while hustling real estate loans and transnational cash deliveries. He also owed Casino Loan Sharks lots of money. In 2009, Jason had forged a power of attorney for his aunt, a hotel worker, and cashed a fraudulent loan for 265000 against her Vancouver home. Jason's family claimed they didn't know what he did with the money, but they knew he was in trouble. In early May of 2010, he had walked into his mother's home disheveled, claiming that thugs had kidnapped him, drugged him, and left him unconscious in a Vancouver park. He was running out of time. The last time his mother saw him was on June 7th, 2010. She called the police on June 17th to report Jason missing. She told police that some Vietnamese men had visited her home. They said Jason would die if he didn't pay his bill soon. Police found Jason's car on June 19th and opened the trunk. It was a bizarre death. Jason was fully dressed and flat on his back with his head resting on a stuffed teddy bear. There was a plastic bag pulled over his head and his hands and feet were bound with zap straps. The two, two used heroin needles were found lying beside the car's tires. Jason's family said he had no history of heroin use. The coroner found that he had died of heroin toxicity and suffocation. But they couldn't determine Jason's cause of death. Police believed that because Jason was a gambling addict, in way over his head, he had killed himself and staged it to look like a hit, hoping to win his family an insurance payout. In other words, for an inveterate fraudster, one final desperate act of fraud. The theory didn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe Jason had decided to take his own life before someone else did, and perhaps he pray, he hoped to pay his mother back for fraudulent real estate loans he had saddled her with. But to me, it was similar to the jumble of facts surrounding the botched Las Vegas cash transfer that Jason undertook with prominent Vancouver realtor um, shortly before his bizarre demise. The known facts raised as many questions as answered. Looking back, I I know one thing. My September 2015 Vancouver Province story about the cases, quote, inside the world of BC's top realtor, a deep pool of mainland Chinese buyers, a dead froster, and a forfeited license, assembled many of the big Vancouver model puzzle pieces that I would fit together in September of 2017. I had stumbled onto Jason Lee's case when a tip came in that Julia Lau, a realtor making enormous fees selling luxury homes to Chinese buyers, had quietly forfeited her real estate license in 2015. I already knew that Julia Lau was big. She had come from Hong Kong and started real estate selling in 2005. By 2008, she was making $400,000 per year. After 2010, as cash from China flooded in, she was reportedly selling over 100 luxury homes per year. These were mansions that often cost well over $10 million. In one interview, Lau had told me her Chinese clients were flying into Vancouver for Chinese New Year every January and driving prices higher. They did not need mortgage loans, she said, because they bought homes with cash. So I learned. I searched BC courts looking for Lau's name. One 2012 federal court file was a gold mine. Julia Lau has sued Canada's Public Safety Minister for the return of $130,000 in cash seized from Jason Lee at the Vancouver airport as suspected proceeds of crime. But the federal judge upheld the Canadian government's anti-money laundering seizure. Given the totality of the background of this case, it is hardly surprising that the minister had suspicions as to the source of funds and the flow of monies, the judge wrote. There is a clear and rational basis for the Minister's concern. Julia Lau's battle with Canada's anti-money laundering officials started in April 2010. The judge wrote when she hired Jason Lee to buy a used 2008 Porsche Turbo Cabriolet in Florida. According to Lau's version of events, Jason Lee was to be paid 10000 to buy the yellow Porsche in the United States and ship it into Vancouver, but Lau's legal findings, which she showed, claimed $690,000 in income in 2009, provided no explanation of why she wired U.S. 133000 Bank of Nevada accounts at the Wynn Casino Resort in Las Vegas in order to facilitate Jason Lee's contract to buy a used Porsche in Florida. Curiously, the money was to go into a casino cage depository, the judge wrote, Judge Lau's banking records showed that she had indeed wired U.S. funds into the Las Vegas casino account, but it is not clear what happened to this money next. Um, according to Julia Lau, Jason Lee claimed he had purchased and shipped a Porsche 911 to her with his own money, and so he had wire transferred Lau's $133,000 back to her. It turned out that neither the Porsche nor the one hundred thirty three thousand in funds arrived in Vancouver. For unexplained reasons, Julia Lau took another one hundred thousand dollars cash from her American security lockbox and gave it to Lee. And she obtained a fifty thousand dollar cash loan on April twenty eighth in Vancouver from a man named Ma- Mylan Chen. Chen was a pharmaceutical and real estate development tycoon from Guangdong who happened to be making a major real estate investment in Vancouver and buying many opulent mansions. And from the cash in her own safe and the cash loan from Mei Chen, Julia Lau said she gave $133,000 cash to Jason Lee on April 30th, and Lee set out for Las Vegas again. But before Jason Lee could board his flight to Las Vegas, he was flagged by Canada Border Services agents with $133,000 in undeclared cash. In an airport interrogation room, Lee told CBSA agents that the cash they had seized from him included 30000 from a loan shark and 100000 from Julia Lau. Jason Lee told the agents he was involved in fraudulent high-end car sales, so he had to leave the airport empty-handed and go back to Julia Lau. According to Lau, Lee visited her on the night of May 1. To tell her the bad news, Canada had seized the $133,000 in cash as proceeds of crime. Julia Lau maintained that Jason Lee had stolen her money and the government refused to return the stolen money. But in 2012, the federal judge said that because Julia Lau had kept the $100,000 in cash that she gave to Jason Lee in her American security home safe. It created an undocumented void between the legitimate origin and the seized funds, and a crude loan document for thirty thousand dollars cash, written up between Julia Lau and Guangdong tycoon Melan Chen, raised as many questions as it answers. The Canadian judge found, and there was also the question hanging that Lee said this thirty thousand dollars came from a loan shark. What happened to Jason Lee from May to mid-June 2010 is also an undocumented void. His death remains a mystery, according to the B.C. Supreme Court judge that handled a separate case. In 2016, the judge ruled that Jason Lee's mother and aunt had to pay a mortgage investment corporation $246,000 because Jason Lee had taken out the fraudulent loan against his family's own real estate assets. After the province published my story, Julia Lau took strong exception and maintained that she had no connection to any wrongdoing in Jason Lee's case or in Canada's anti-money laundering action against her. But there was something else I found in Lau's court file. In 2013, she had sued a real estate broker claiming she didn't receive her full commission for selling a $10 million. Burnaby mansion. the buyer, was a Chinese construction tycoon and real estate developer named YZ. In September of 2017, I found YZ's name on a list of 36 River Rock Casino VIPs and investigated by Ross Alderson's team at BC Lottery Corp. Alderson had connected these whale gamblers to Paul King Jin's alleged transnational money laundering operation. So this is the point in 2015 I had no idea that Julia Lau's clients included China, Chinese VIP backrat players such as Malin Chen and YZ, men involved in major BC land deals, and connected to massive suspicious tr- cash transactions at River Rock Casino. But my September 2015 story about Jason Lee and Julia Lau had all the flags. Casinos in BC and Las Vegas undeclared cash Complex transnational deals involving luxury vehicles, of course, Vancouver mansions, lockboxes, and real estate professionals that acted like junket agents for Chinese tycoons. Crude private lender promissory notes, forged banking, and mortgage documents. Loan shark death threats, heroin needles, and the mysterious death of a transnational money mule the bad gambling and habit and side hustles, including shipping high-end sports cars between Canada and China and the United States. I have to be very clear, Julia Lau stated categorically that she had done nothing wrong in the circumstances. A story, she wrote, attempted to link my success to allegations of money laundering, malpractice, and the unfortunate death of a person who the RCMP said committed suicide. These allegations against me are completely untrue, with no basis in fact. Indeed. But many of the players and scenes surrounding this case foreshadowed the Vancouver model. Before the Vancouver model had a name. Dot, dot, dot. My investigative mindset starts with a mode of questioning known as Occam's Razor. Often the simplest explanation is the right one. In 2015, Vancouver real estate was skyrocketing, and all indications pointed to a capital flight from China. And yet China had strict export controls of 50000 per year per person. Chinese citizens could take no more than $50,000 outside the country each year. So how was all this money ending up in Vancouver? My instinct was to follow the big money and the big players. In private, big developers told me about 30 cents of every real estate dollar in B.C. came from mainland China. The realtors in Vancouver were aiming their marketing at Chinese investors. There was a speculative frenzy. In private, realtors would talk about buyers with the suitcases of cash. But when they were quoted in newspaper stories, most B.C. developers and big politicians denied offshore investment was a factor in Vancouver real estate prices. Prices. Sorry, The vehement denials tended to make you think offshore money was actually the primary factor driving prices. You only had to look at a historical price chart for Vancouver homes. Clearly, prices started to curve above the trend line in 1988, and they never came back. This was right around the time of the Expo 86 when big chunks of downtown Vancouver were sold to the Hong Kong tycoons Stanley Ho, Chang Yu-Tung, and Lee Ka-Shing. At the same time, most in Vancouver acted like pennies were raining from heaven, but a Vancouver professor named Donald Gutstein found the social credit government of the day had sold Expo 86 lands for pennies on the dollar. This was about one-sixth of downtown Vancouver. The Washington Post did a story called The New Hongs of Vancouver. The reporters detailed how Canada was courting big money from Asia and Toronto and Vancouver were being transformed but in different ways. Toronto was drawing mostly middle-class migrants from Hong Kong, but Vancouver was welcoming Hong Kong's old money, fortunes that in some cases could be traced all the way back to the days of Jardine and Matheson. Foremost among wealthy arrivals is Lee Ka-Shing, the Post reported in 1992. Other big name Chinese investors in Vancouver include Stanley Ho Sung, a Macau gambling and real estate magnate, said to be worth $1.2 billion, Cheng Yu Tong, Hong Kong's largest diamond dealer who owns the sprawling Ramada hotel ch- chain and Vancouver's Myriad Yen and New World Harborside Hotels. This was fine for United States reporters to write, but my Vancouver Sun colleague, Doug Todd, told me that Canadian reporters of the era called the xenophobes, or were called xenophobes, or worse, for daring to write about Hong Kong money. And the pushback, Todd told me, was directed by Vancouver developers. And it goes without saying, no one was writing about the uncomfortable proximity of triads, and the Chinese state to the New new Hongs of Vancouver. And 25 years later, when I really started drilling down into the story, the money was flowing straight from the river's head, mainland China. But unlike, unlike the Hong Kong tycoons, the mainland China players had little or no public profile. In order to write this mystery money, I needed simple and clear evidence, names, faces, bank accounts, and transaction methods. So Julia Lau had dropped her incredibly lucrative Vancouver real estate license, but I found she was still very involved in within her network of Mainline China clients via a growing shadow market called crowdfunding. According to her own records, Lau had sold $560 million worth of luxury residences in Vancouver from 2009 to 2014. Now she could leverage her pool of ultra wealthy clients for a new kind of real estate deal. The idea was a multitude of buyers in China could contribute small portions of money for a single land deal in Canada. At least this is what the crowd funders claimed their invest- investment materials were. But who each investor was and how much they contributed and how they exported the money into Canada was known only by these crowdfunding networks directors. But I was able to identify significant investors by running Julia Lau's name in Vancouver residence through uh, BC real estate lending records. The investors had to show their pooled real estate collateral in order to secure funding from small regional banks and murky mortgage investment corporations. So I found Lau was involved in Burnaby land assembly deal with a number of mainland China investors, including Meilin Chen the Guangdong tycoon, who had loaned Julia Lau $50,000 in cash in the Jason Lee Lee case. Mr. Chen had his own wealth creation story, and it reminded me of others, like Lai Chanqing. According to a biography, Chen was a school dropout who was running a failing duck farm before he borrowed money to start a restaurant called the Shangri-La. This restaurant rapidly produced incredible profits. So, Mr. Chen redirected these profits into construction, real estate development, and pharmaceutical factories. And somehow, around 2008, Mr. Chen started to export his incredible wealth into Vancouver. Through land title searches, I found that from 2009 to 2015, Mr. Chen's BC land holding company had owned or flipped 13 properties worth close to 100 million. And one of those properties was a 50 million, 17,000 square foot Italian style mansion in Vancouver's posh Point Grey neighborhood. Another major figure in Julia Lau's crowdfunding network was a mysterious na- man named Hong Wei Soon, aka Hong Soon, aka Kevin Lin, aka Soon Hong Wei, aka Kevin Soon. <sighs> By researching lending networks connected to Julia Lau and Maylin Chen, I found that Kevin Soon was a lynchman between many real estate investments or investors and land holding companies. I made a call to commercial real estate agents and found that Mr. Soon and his network of mainland China investors were involved in many BC land assembly deals. But I was told the conglomerate of Chinese investor, investors didn't speak to reporters in Canada. One of the, Mr. Soon's primary investment vehicles was the company called Sun Commercial, and Julia Lau was listed as Vice President of Sun Crowdfunding Holdings Ltd. Limited. I started to put together a network map of the major and minor investors linked to Suncom and, <clears throat> and its associated companies, which included an oil company that was claimed to have $1 billion invested in the United States and Canada. But the real estate and oil companies didn't seem to be producing many new homes or barrels of oil. They appeared to be amassing land. From what I could see in Vancouver's sons the soon's business model was that many residential property owners had aggregated their mansions and condos in pools of collateral. They were using residential real estate to secure loans, and they would use these loans to assemble and land for rezoning. Basically, they seem to be leveraging single-family properties to build condo towers, and for some reason, casinos and cash always revolved around the big players. Sometimes they would sit on an assembled land, sometimes they would flip it to developers from China. By collecting land records into a database, I found that well over 500 million BC property had been bought and sold through companies related to Kevin Sun. I could see flags surrounding investors by running their names through civil court records, land title records, and lending records. Some names were often spelled with multiple variants in BC real estate documents. A big red flag. They could have been attempting to avoid detection from tax and anti money laundering authorities. There were so many questions. And why could they not take a call from a reporter to explain their developer plans? After filing a number of stories from the province on various Sun commercials Sun commercial deals in 2016 I profiled Kevin soon for post media news and summarized my findings quote in an era where many BC real estate titans seek the media spotlight in person to market their projects Kevin soon prefers the shadows after but after examining many hundreds of pages of corporate legal and land documents connected to Kevin Soon, A visual metaphor helps to focus the picture. Revolving around soon are a handful of key people, luxurious homes, and Metro Vancouver properties with high-rise potential. The people, homes, and land are connected to about 14 investment companies. In highly fluid relationships where personal names, corporate locations and company names, and directorships constantly change. End quote. Some of the properties in my Suncom network map were more interesting than others. Let me read that again. Some of the properties in my Suncom network map were more interesting than others. One of the director's addresses, a Tudor-style Vancouver mansion was bought by Kevin Sun's um, business partner, a Richmond real estate agent named Denise Shea, after a previous owner, Big Circle Boys heavyweight Raymond Hong Chow was executed outside of his front gates in 2007. Before his unsolved murder, Raymond Chow had been Betty Yan's boss. He was one of the top heroin, methamphetamine, and chemical precursor importers in Canada, with criminal links to China, Hong Kong, the United States, and Australia. Had Chow lived, sources told me, he would now have equivalent status with Big Circle Boys, Chi Lopsi, and Kwong Chu and there were 9.5 million gated mansions in Richmond, an opulent rural estate with equestrian quarters that I found was referred in BC Lottery Corp investigation records regarding illegal casinos. The records were heavily redacted and didn't explain why investigators were interested in this mansion. I had more than a few clues to work with. Another tool in my investigative Uh, mindset is pattern recognition. When you see enough flags and enough connections you can make something like an intelligence assessment which can guide your search for evidence. In the network you are looking at transparent or totally opaque. What could be the network's primary objectives, secondary objectives, and so on? Why does it exist? Many of the answers follow after you identify the big fish. I had some ideas about Kevin Soon of Richmond, BC, but there was a huge gap in my knowledge of his background in China, and Fabian Dawson knew someone that could help me out. As deputy editor of the province, Dawson was often in the loop on my probes of mystery money from China. He had been following similar files on Hong Kong tycoons since the 1990s. As I continued to probe Vancouver real estate, Dawson informed me that he was handling tense phone calls from two of the most politically connected condo developers in BC. These businessmen were angered with my reports, questioning real estate investment from China. And they tried to have me sidelined. I was aware they were at... They were at top advertising accounts for Vancouver newspapers, but Dawson knew I was asking the right questions. While I was collecting information on Kevin Sun's business interests in North America, he knew his source, former RCMP International Organized Crime Unit Commander Kim Marsh, was simultaneously conducting an international investigation of Sun Hongwei, dot, dot, dot. Through his enforcement sources with access to intelligence in Hong Kong and China, Kim Marsh had learned that Sun Hongwei was connected to investigations of a $500 million banking scandal at Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, and a very familiar pattern had preceded Sun's rise as a tycoon. He was born in uh, Changchun, Jilin, in June of 1968. He was a fashionable young hairdresser who plied his trade in Gillen City until 1988, and then, while in his mid-twenties, he caught a significant break. Reportedly, his life was turned around at this point by a close associate, whose mother was a senior bank officer at the Jilin branch of the ICBC, an IPSA international investigation file said. And in the 1990s, soon somehow rapidly amassed many former state-owned industrial assets in Jilin. Within a few years, Sun's Jilin conglomerate included at least 14 companies that had acquired semiconductor plants and various factories, as well as pharmaceutical and retail chains. But there were many red flags, according to Jilin banking. According to a Jilin banking loan audit, sorry, excuse me. I found that in November 2000, Shenzhen Stock Exchange announced that Sun Hongwei and the Jilin Pharmaceutical Group were judged by Jilin City People's Court to have violated civil law in a company merger involving the possession and use and disposal of a Jilin chemical plant. And Kakshin, the Chinese investigative magazine that reportedly had excellent sources with China's national police. Reported that Soon was connected to dubious venture agreements for a business that does not exist. Also, Kim Marsh's files show that Soon was powerfully connected in northern China. Political exposure, open source findings determined that Song Hongwei, Song Soon Hongwei, excuse me, chairman for Julian Hengye Enterprise Corp. Company was former representative of the National People's Congress for Jilin City in 2001. Regardless, in 2001, Sun's Jilin conglomerate was counted among China's top 100 private, private enterprises. But around 2000, a nationwide loan audit of ICBC, which is the largest bank in China, allegedly revealed irregularities in the Jilin branch in connection to Sun's many companies. I reported for Post Media that according to a statement quoted by Sina Finance, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China Audit Commission alleged since 1994, Jilin Hang Enterprise Group Company Limited and its 13 affiliates, used by a variety of techniques, used a variety of techniques in a conspiracy to defraud banks. <gasps> By the end of 2002, the group's total industrial and commercial Bank of China provincial branch loans stood at 2.8 billion yuan. But Soon was not arrested and apparently had already left China. There was lots of mist surrounding Soon's path to Canada. His residency card indicated that he was a Chinese national, and it was marked 0405 of 2001 Vancouver. But a social insurance card appeared to have been issued in an Atlantic province, possibly Prince Edward Island. I talked to several Mandarin speakers who knew the man personally and knew of his business. Kevin Sun had been here for a while, one Richmond politician told me. He's pretty good at staying out of the spotlight. Another source told me Kevin Sind had arrived in Montreal in 2001, but found it to be too cold and settled in South Vancouver before relocating to Richmond. In Vancouver's Chinese community, it was believed that Sun had incredible wealth in China. He reported, reportedly liked bragging about it, but no one could say how he transferred his wealth into Canada. One of Sun's real estate associates told me, though, that Sun was just continuing in B.C. with methods he used in northern China. He's an opportunist, you know. In Jilin, he brought, bought factories very cheap, and he sells it for the real estate value and then leaves. Then. The Vancouver realtor said, now he moves very fast from buying farmland to flipping houses to flipping commercial property. If a developer from China wants to develop in Vancouver, soon buys the land first and then sells it to them. He's very secretive and smart. The person had another point to make. In Vancouver, it is not not just Kevin, though. There are hundreds of people similar to him. This was a statement that all my credible intelligence sources, whether it was law enforcement, real estate development, or underground banking participants, agreed on. The law enforcement officers I interviewed told us agencies, including the RCMP and Canada Border Services Agency, were aware of investigations in China concerning Kevin Sun and a Suncom executive. But despite this, Suncom was incredibly active in BC land deals And I later found through multiple sources with direct knowledge that after BC's government cracked down on offshore investors, the Sun Network was quickly expanding into Toronto land deals. And this was the same network that Kim Marsh and I had profiled in July of 2016. The modus operandi outlined in this case is similar to some of the operations that are using the Canadian real estate market to launder money, Marsh said in the Post Media News story. This situation begs many questions, including what happened to the visa vetting process, banking compliance, public company scrutiny, and regulators of all sorts. Mr. Sun did not agree to an interview regarding the July 2016 story allegations, but responded through his Vancouver lawyer. As far as my client knows, there are no Chinese police warrants in China for Kevin Sun under that or any name. Nor are there any RCMP files in relation to the same. The lawyer James Carpick stated, In the aftermath of that story, there were some interesting things that Marsh and his contacts came across. One source indicated that Kevin Soon was familiar with the Chinese consulate in Vancouver. Another said Marsh had shared his firm's findings with, with Chinese banking officials, but for some reason they showed no interest in repatriating funds in Kevin Soon's case. Meanwhile, my story for Post Media, meet the mysterious tycoon at the center of half a billion B.C. property deals, create a lot of interest in Vancouver's real estate markets. In the late 2016, the University of B.C. Law School invited me to give a presentation on my findings. Among the crowd of lawyers, casually dressed in jeans and a blazer, was David Eby the BC NDP opposition critic for housing and casinos, and future BC attorney general. There were also several men that I guessed were police officers. I told the forum that, in my view, BC's crowdfunding real estate market seemed to be growing exponentially, and it was a massive risk for money laundering. Land was being traded like shares of stock most of the buyers were pretty much anonymous. All kinds of fronts and side deals involving shadow banking seemed to be connected, and Canadian officials were not tracing the funds. There is no way to see who all these land investors are, I said. When the crowd funders buy a piece of land, how can you tell whether whether illegitimate and legitimate funds are being commingled? I can see that EB, Who was seated off to the side of the crowd was nodding enthusiastically as I said this. After I finished my presentation and walked from the podium to return to the Vancouver Sun newsroom at 200 Granville Street, the man stopped me and asked for a quick word outside. He identified himself as Canadian intelligence analyst. Everything you just said is right on, he said. Did you know he is involved in gambling? That is my file. I said no, but if Kevin Soon was involved in gambling, it would make a lot of sense. One of Kevin Soon's associates, Vancouver Realtor, had claimed in a BC Supreme Court civil case that after arriving in Vancouver around 2003, Soon had planned to set up a gambling network in BC and also a real estate investment network for the Chinese market. The intelligence analyst didn't say anything more except that I should keep digging on the file. This type of person helped me understand how targeted freedom of information law requests in BC might shed light on a network of Chinese VIPs involved with the casino loan sharks in Richmond and mainland China and Macau, dot, dot. dot. So let me take a break just for a moment to let you know that there has been some domestic reporting uh, implicating that China is both a supplier and a money launderer in the United States. The first peeking of that happened out today on Fox News that I could see. Um, there may be additional reporting other places like Epoch News soon, um, but it is getting out. Like they're just they're just nudging it out. So I included a couple links in the. In the links section, if you go to the box uh, that says unsanctioned citizen, there's three dots there if you just push to the side. There's also a story about um, the mayor of Uvalde taking a hard line. It's just a follow-up story of some of the coverage that we've had here on the unsanctioned citizen. And so the gloves are off, and then the next one is the dangers of fentanyl. And that is a series um, on Fox at this time. Okay. So I just wanted to, to stop and indicate those news links that have some relevance to the reading material. And I'll just continue here with chapter twelve, welcome razor. So I was starting to learn about the major players and their money, as the legendary US hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones put put it in nineteen eighty seven PBS documentary, Trader. The whole world is simply nothing more than a flow chart for capital. I could visualize that picture seeing mainland China as an ocean of money surrounded by a mountainous dam that was riddled with subterranean cavities. Money was flooding out through these underground tunnels and sluicing into a rapidly expanding balloon in Vancouver's residential property market. But how was the money actually getting into Vancouver real estate? When I talked about this with Mark uh, Cohodes, he said financial systems are basically no different than plumbing. There are pipes and tubes and valves handling the flow. You had to understand that well-paid professionals, the financial gatekeepers, were manning all of the faucets. So I needed step-by-step evidence in order to explain how the transactions between China and Vancouver occurred. I knew that investors often got involved in B.C. civil court cases revolving around real estate disputes, and lawyers, informed me unprecedented numbers of cases involving investors from China, were piling up in B.C. courts. I found that when the players fought each other in a court, they had to produce confidential records to argue their cases. And sometimes, the British Columbia Securities Commission, a regulator usually responsible for proving Vancouver's prolific penny stock scams, got indirectly drawn into these real estate disputes. That's what happened in 2015 when a Vancouver dentist complained to the commission about getting fleeced in a gold mining startup scam. But dodgy gold stocks were just a minor money laundering solution. Little pipe connectors for the industrial scale fraud at the heart of the case. For me, the case provided the most granular picture a Vancouver model real estate money laundering ever reported, minus the casino money laundering connections that I would later discover. The dentist, who I and my colleague Dan Fumano agreed not to name in our 2016 Vancouver province story, Follow the Money, explained his case in hindsight just like this. It just unveils a huge intricate network. It also begets the question of what money fuels the the Vancouver real estate industry. And in what light does it show how well the real estate profession is policed in the city? In simple terms, the case showed that Vancouver fraudsters duped investors into buying fake gold and oil stocks with anonymous bank drafts. And these anonymous bank drafts allowed mainland Chinese investors to deposit funds in top tier Canadian banks in order to buy real estate. The commission did not look at the broader picture, but found that dentists were duped into a complicated transaction in which the dentist's bank draft was deposited into bank account of a woman with whom he had no connection and in fact had never heard of. I would later find the anonymous bank draft scam was widely used to launder money into BC Lottery Corp VIP gambler accounts. In the dentist case the linchpin was Richmond casino loan shark Shekin Chang. A skillful player in the big circle boy's financial crime cells, Chang was a mode, sorry, a node that connected a large network of stock scammers, Richmond currency exchangers, and mainland China home buyers, Vancouver realtors, and big Canadian banks. Through his hands, three, banks dra- three bank drafts totaling $500,000 were deposited into a West Vancouver Bank of Montreal in account in December of 2014. But whatever his cut of the action was, Chang didn't live long to enjoy the proceeds. In June of 2015, he was found dead in his car in a parking lot outside a temple in Richmond. Witnesses told police a black SUV had pulled up and sprayed Chang's car with 20 shots and then raced away. It could have been fallout from any number of money laundering transactions. Years earlier, Calgary Police's Economic Crimes Unit had caught Chen working in, for one of the many sales sent from Vancouver to Alberta with cash from casino accounts and to buy luxury clothing and electronics using counterfeit credit cards. Alberta Police seized 47 fake credit cards from Chang, and 8 counterfeit driver's licenses and $16,000 cash. I went to my Chinese Canadian business sources in Vancouver to learn more about Chang. One woman in the insurance business told me Chang used Richmond real, uh, retail stores to sell luxury items stolen from across Canada. She said Chang also loan sharked and laundered money in the Richmond casino. She didn't see Chang as a gang banger though. He was standing between real, real business and gangsters, the woman told me. He washed the money and take percentage. He used to say if money can solve the problem, then it is not a problem. In the end, he didn't have enough money to solve his problems. His murder is unsolved, and the records show that Chang still owes Canada $700,000 in back taxes. In any case, when I boiled it down, it looked like Chang's primary task from the Big Circle Boys was like priming pumps. He, basically, he needed to steal and defraud money from people to create a stock of financial instruments to allow mainland China investors to deposit funds in BC banks. The pools of money could be tied to uh, Canadian investors and professionals. This way, no money actually traveled between China and Canada. Chinese investors could deposit funds to organize crime in China, and they would be paid out with anonymous bank drafts in Canada. Transcripts from the BC Security Commission investigation showed me that it worked like this. The Vancouver dentist wanted to make some quick money to buy an investment property for his family. At a party, he met a smooth-talking investment pro who called himself Azim Virani. It was one of the many aliases that Virani used for his many stock trading scams. He told the dentist of Vancouver Gold Mining company was about to go public, and the dentist could make up to 40% in two months. All the dentist had to do was give Verani a bank draft for $120,000, and Verani would take care of the rest. To seal the deal, the dentist met Verani at a steakhouse in the Shangri-La Hotel, a luxury condo tower across the street from the Trump Tower in Cole Harbor. The dentist was confused about one thing, why did he have to sign the bank draft for his gold stock investment? In the name of Ziionang Chang,, Ugh. he had no idea who this person was. Bro, I do this many times and in lots of different ways. Verani said, explained to the dentist. It helps me fly under the radar for um, tax purposes. The dentist accepted Verani's ex- excuse and filled out a bank draft on December seventeenth twenty fourteen and the stock scammer gave the one hundred and twenty. Thousand dollar bank draft to Shek Ying Chang. The dentist told investors he never dealt directly with Chang, but knew him. I met him a couple times, and the way I've described his friends is that I've talked to him about him with somebody who'd be able to look you in the eyes and stab you without blinking. The dentist said. With the Vancouver dentist bank draft in hand, Chang now had enough laundered bank drafts in Vancouver to release a single home down payment for a Chinese real estate developer who wanted to step on the first rung of Vancouver's property ladder. And so, in late December 2014, Vancouver realtor Liang Ming Wei walked into a vast dining hall of Floata, a bustling dim sum restaurant across the street from Sun Yat Sen Gardens in Chinatown. Wei had been busy for months. In the summer, he opened a bank account in West Vancouver for his client, Zhong Hyun Chang, ah, who had claimed to be a transportation executive in China. In order to open her bank of Montreal, Ms. Zhang had traveled to Vancouver and signed documents claiming that her Canadian address was the Burnaby home of her realtor, Liang Mingwei. And the pair had BC land titles adjusted, adding Zhang's name to mortgage documents on which she claimed to be a homemaker, and her banking documents claimed she was a Canadian citizen. All of this was false, but it was necessary for Ziyong Tiang I think that's how you say it, to skirt Canada's money laundering and tax laws. As a realtor, Liang Mingwei, which is so much easier to say, by the way, had advised Sang's That Vancouver's property market was skyrocketing she needed to deposit 500,000 into a Canadian bank right away to fund a down payment and secure financing when investigators asked Wei why he went through this elaborate transaction to transfer money from China to Canada he answered matter-of-factly the bank in China doesn't provide this kind of service he didn't explain that a transfer of 500000 from a Chinese citizen to Canada is 10 times greater than the $550,000 annual limit permitted under China's laws. In corporate records, I also found that Ms. Zhang had set up a Vancouver real estate development company in December of 2014, and in March of 2015, Liang Mingwei signed a with the company for a lease on a 2014 Rolls Royce Ghost, which retailed for 360000 The main transaction involving Mr. Wei took place in Chinatown. The owner of RTY International Currency Exchange in Richmond called Mr. Wei and said that Ms. Zhang had deposited 3 million yuan in a Chinese bank, and now she had 521,000. 470 in Canadian funds ready to be paid out in Richmond. But the currency exchange owner told the realtor it was better not to exchange Ms. Zhang's bank drafts as RTY International. Mr. Wei was directed to meet Richmond currency exchange owner's brother at a table inside Floata. The busy dining hall would provide cover for an obscure exchange. In Floata, Mr. Wei took three bank drafts totaling Four hundred seventy thousand that were all made out to Zongcheng Zhang. I don't know how to say this. Plus fifty thousand plus a fifty thousand dollar check. All three of bank drafts came from separate victims, including the Vancouver dentist. The funds were deposited in Zhang's West Vancouver bank, and she was ready to buy a home. There is no record that anyone involved in the real estate transactions faced consequences because the BC Securities Commission was not responsible to regulate the business at the heart of the fraud, but in my story I made sure to include a transcript of the Commission's interview with Ms. Zhang when her BMO account was frozen during the stock fraud investigation. Her answers were ridiculous, but she was smart enough to play dumb when she asked why she falsely claimed Canada as her residence when opening a BMO account. I don't remember. Perhaps at the time, the bank clerk suggested that to put Canada down, Miss Zhang answered. She was asked why she claimed her realtor's Burnaby address as her own. I really don't know. What kind of address is that, she said. She couldn't even identify the source on the $470,000 that was deposited into her account on December 30th of 2014. Where was that money coming from, the investigator asked, pointing to the banking records and three bank drafts. Used to fund the account. I don't know. It's your account. How is it that you don't know? I cannot recall. Is it possible that you might have deposited the money? I cannot recall. She's doing an Ollie North. So, do you know why these people that you don't know anything about are depositing money into your account, into your bank account? I don't know. Well, the BC Liberal government of the day didn't comment. On my story, internal records show that they paid close attention to the apparent organized crime network involved. For the story, I interviewed the Vancouver NDP MP David Evie, who is paying close attention to my money laundering investigations and looking at lax regulations from Vancouver realtors. Evie told me that a number of real estate investors insiders had been visiting his Point Grey office to complain about offshore buyers evidently using Realtors addresses and accounts to purchase homes in Canada. Evie told me he was also looking at a scam in which offshore buyers would purchase homes from Canadian sellers but their Realtor would already have a number of future buyers lined up and so a single-family home would get bought and then purchase contract flipped a number of times to anonymous pools of buyers. It was driving up prices rapidly. But also, as one Vancouver r- realtor told me, creating this perfect vehicles for laundering money, I was really troubled by the facts in your case, Evie said in an interview. And I am concerned this is not a one-off situation, and this could be a systemic, regular practice. And I found that Evie was right. Not only that, It seemed that by following the money from China, you always end up with this interrelated network of players, and the bigger the player, the more nodes they are connected to. In the case of Zhong Yun Zhang, (laughs) I eventually found that her real estate development company interfaces several real estate developers with direct connections to the Chinese Communist Party. Ah, dot, dot, dot. So, the shek yin chang in the RTY financial case was only one real estate transaction, but it pointed to a vast network and a method of skirting China's capital export laws. You have money in China. You want to buy something in another country. So you go to an organized crime. The vast underground banks built on heroin money are used to transfer all kinds of money out of China, and much of it is drug and corruption money. But some of it is more or less legitimate income. Whether you are a fentanyl dealer or a computer programmer, it doesn't matter. You make a deposit in China and you get a credit from the criminal bank. At a later date, the criminals pay you out in the West. And how did you get paid out? The Shek-Yin-Chang case showed me that casinos and currency exchanges were used like ATMs. <laughs> and my Sources in criminal intelligence would talk about the Golden Mile. Someone wants to come in. Yes, okay. Okay. So, vast networks. Okay, and my sources in criminal intelligence would talk about the Golden Mile. It was actually a circle. A couple of blocks surrounding the junction of Number Three Road and Westminster Highway in downtown Richmond. My sources said that this was the epicenter of Chinese underground banking in North America. Many of the businesses that I flagged in my Vancouver model maps—RTY Financial, Silver International, Phantom Secure, Guo Law Corporation—all within a five-minute walk. And that must have been very useful for casino gangsters lugging bags of cash and bank drafts. Some of my best sources knew that the Vancouver model firsthand. Some did shady business with the people I was writing about, some followed their laws of professions, and resented colleagues that were getting ahead, playing dirty. Most of them couldn't speak openly, or they'd be blackballed by their condo developing colleagues. The best quote I ever published along these lines came from a Vancouver developer. He told me $300,000 of every 1 million spent in Vancouver real estate comes from mainland China. I own a business, I drive a German sedan, I wear a handmade suit in Italy, and I drink good wine, he told me. The people I hang out with, these guys want every floodgate wide open. If we cut off the buyer source, they lose commission. There is a huge stake for a lot of people. Local people in keeping this thing going. And I often found that after publishing a story about offshore money, new sources would contact me. In late 2016, I worked at the Vancouver Sun and got a tip from a knowledgeable lawyer about a case involving a Richmond law firm located dead center of Golden Mile. The Richmond lawyer, Hong Guo a former Chinese government employee who eventually threatened defamation litigation after I wrote six stories about her cases claimed that her employees had stolen $7.5 million from her trust account. This had impacted conveyancing on a number of home purchases, and many buyers from mainland China sued the law firm. Guo claimed her employees had converted some of the funds into bank drafts which they deposited into VIB. VIP gambler accounts at BC Lottery Corps Casino and then converted to cash. I found that Zizhen Li, the accountant she used in the case, had actually set up a shell company with Guo shortly before the massive trust account theft. That looked like a flag to me. Next, I found, according to court filings from another of the law firm's employee, Zijin Li, had allegedly been running an undeclared cash account for the law firm. That was another big flag for me. Wang Guo reported her trust fund theft case to the RCMP, claiming that Jin Li and another employee named Qian Pan had laundered money through BC casinos in order to send the funds to Zhu Y. And it occurred to me that this Guangdong city connected by bridges to Macau and Hong Kong was reputed to be Asia's supernode of underground banking. It was like the Bermuda Triangle of money laundering. An uncountable trillions have dropped off the radar of the world's banking system through this black hole of financial crime. Sources in the RCMP said Honglo's story didn't add up. But they were intrigued that she had connections with police officials in China and one of her employees alleged that Guo claimed her father was a People's Liberation Army official and real estate developer in China. It was a story that had more than a few people in Richmond had heard of from Guo. All of this was fascinating to my sources. From an intelligence assessment perspective, Guo was well connected in China and had handled massive transfers of funds between China and Canada. I decided to visit Guo's office and ask some questions myself. My first clue was a unique legal business was the security camera mounted by the reception desk. A sign with an exclamation mark warned patrons their actions were being recorded. I sat in Guo's corner office as she leaned forward in a wing-back leather chair. Beautiful traditional Chinese landscape painting adorned the wall behind her, and there were jade art pieces and a lovely statue of a long-necked crane. We were planning to do a story, so our long-lens camera specialist, Nick Prokalo, Procle- was posted outside on Number 3 Road. I knew if anyone could get a photo of an unwilling subject, Prokalo would. I broke the ice with Guo by pointing to a line of photos displayed behind me. There was B.C. Premier Christy Clark, former Liberal Prime Minister John Shretian, and future Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Guo spoke proudly of of the pictures and said that he told Christy Clark to welcome more investment from China. I visited the office several times and Guo invited Procalo to come inside and take pictures. The interviews were progressively strange. Once in the middle of my line of questionings about a case involving tens of millions of mystery funds from China flowing through Guo's legal trust account, she started to cry. She said she feared that some men were taking advantage of her vulnerability. I don't mention this anecdote to make fun of her. It was highly unusual behavior for a wealthy professional. It seemed like a theatrical flourish aimed at gaining sympathy, but I was able to collect some interesting Answers before our discussion ceased with her personal legal threat letter that included capitalized sentences and exclamation points. Before threatening to sue me, Guo admitted that she had a close relationship with police in Zhuhai. And the next time I would see her was in late 2017 at a strange press conference in her office where she announced her investigation with Chinese police had resulted in the arrest of Zhishin Li and Kian Pan Lee's family would later reportedly request assistance from Ottawa, claiming he was refused the recognition of his Canadian citizenship by the Chinese authorities, and that he faced unfair and inhumane treatment in a Chinese jail. Meanwhile, in late 2016, a Mandarin-speaking businessman in Richmond contacted me. He said he was following my extensive reporting on Guo's trust fund theft case. His expertise was in brokering subprime financing for real estate development in Richmond, and he quickly got my attention with a stunning allegation. He claimed that he had complained to BC Law Society about Honguo, but soon after making the complaint, he was visited by a couple of thugs who severely beat him. He claimed they were associates of a Richmond massage parlor owner named Paul King Jin. Furthermore, he said that he went back to the Law Society and reported that beating this beating allegation, he told me the Law Society didn't seem to take his allegations very seriously. So I repeatedly questioned the Law Society about these issues. It was very difficult to get answers. Finally, in 2020, I got this response confirming that the subprime mortgage broker, in fact, had complained of a beating. The Law Society can confirm it received a complaint," the response said. The complaint raised several issues, all of which all of which were investigated. The issues had sufficient information to support the disciplinary action, were referred to the Discipline Committee, and action was taken. In 2021, the response to my questions about this case and others, Guo wrote, I am unaware of any current Law Society investigation regarding me, or Guo Law Corp, which concerns directly or indirectly mister Jin or his wife Xiao Qi Wei. I'm also unaware of such investigation of complaints regarding money laundering, loan sharking, or any such criminality with respect to the support assault of a person on a person who made a complaint. Your email is the 1st time I've I have heard of such any such thing. Guo added I met with Mr. Peter German during his B.C. casino money laundering investigation and more recently with counsel from the Cullen Commission. All were grateful for the small assistance I was able to offer and there was never any suggestion of impropriety on my part. So in late 2016 was the first time I had heard the name of Paul King Jin and his name was connected to the Guo's Richmond law firm a business that had claimed to be transacting about 700 million per year in residential real estate mostly for mainland China investors they were also involved in numerous commercial deals for mainland China investors scouring western Canada for ocean ports fresh water sources industrial and mining assets and jade and they were involved in land assembly for condo developments. Roughly I estimated that they were engaged in about $1 billion of investment per year in BC. And Hongguo's firm was also involved in many civil disputes. The case that intrigued me the most was the one involved subprime mortgage broker Hongguo and a number of Chinese investors running funds through Hong Kong and the British Virgin Islands. And it involved a currency exchange that I had come across before, RTY Financial. Transcriptions of examinations for discovery, the pretrial sessions where lawyers grill opposing litigants, provided tantalizing details. They outlined a number of complex transactions that led to a deal for three Richmond development lots in t- July of 2013. In the run up to this deal, the Richmond subprime financing financing specialist Hong Guo and Liu Sikora, a former Coquitlam mayor and federal liberal MP who also worked as a Canadian immigration judge, had been crisscrossing B.C. looking for major land deals. Sikora earned finder's fees for introducing Guo's mainland China investors to deals that his B.C. municipal politician colleagues were pitching. In the RTF financial case, a number of investors from mainland China were seeking to build condos I think it's supposed to be RTY financial case, but it's, it's RTF in this, this sentence. To build condos on Minro Boulevard in downtown Richmond. They had also acquired a glacier-fed spring near the resort of Whistler and planned to ship bottled water to China. Two men from Beijing were among the major players. There was a Mr. Xu, a Chinese national who had been in Belize, uh, had a Belize visa, according to company documents, and Mr. Lee, a Chinese national with an entry-exit visa from Macau and Hong Kong. So the men were connected with several Hong Kong companies, Sparkle Long and Double Wealth International. The Panama Papers database showed me that Double Wealth was linked to Hong Kong and the British Virgin Islands. I didn't find Sparkle Long in the Panama Papers, but the case documents also showed it was registered to the British Virgin Islands. The Chinese investors had no problem buying land and resources in Canada. The documents showed that tens of millions had been sent into Han Guo's legal trust to fund the Glacier Spring in Minoru Boulevard land assembly deal. There was no explanation of how the money got into Canada, but it had been aggregated into Guo's trust accounts. According to the legal filings, the Chinese investors had problems with construction financing and couldn't get funding from big Canadian banks because the whole transaction looked suspicious. So, they had to seek financing from third-string regional banks, and this is where the subprime mortgage broker came in. The Minoru Boulevard deal was about to collapse before he secured lending in 2013, July. But he claimed that Honguo had shortchanged his finder's fee, and he sued. Triggering a flurry of BC Supreme Court claims and counterclaims. It was a gold mine of records for me. Legal filings showed Richmond subprime mortgage broker questioned, who really owned twenty dollar twenty million and transferred into Hong Quo's legal trust to fund the Minoru Boulevard condo development deal. Guo's client, Mr. Xu of Beijing and Belize, claimed the twenty million was his. But records filed by a third investor, Mr. Yan, said most of the 20 million came from Mr. Lee and the Hong Kong companies, and known as Sparkle Long and Double Wealth International. And what was Mr. Lee's involvement in any of these companies? What was it, was that your money that was being funneled through Lai? A lawyer asked Mr. Chu. I don't want to answer because I don't want to talk about my money, Mr. Shu answered. It doesn't matter where it came from. The source is Hong Kong, and that's my business. How did you get $20 million, You say million you have invested in this deal from China to Vancouver, the lawyer pressed. I will not provide you with the documents in China, Mr. Shu answered. The lawyer tried once more. I'm asking you if you have anything that can show or corroborate as to where this money came from, how it arrived in Canada. I'm asking you if you have documentation, digital or otherwise, other than your testimony that can explain or show us that, how that money got to Canada. Who gave it to you? Who sourced it? How it arrived here? No documents, Mr. Sheehy insisted. But other case records show that Mr. Yan alleged Hong Kuo and some investors had cheated him in the Richmond condo development deal. And he was becoming increasingly desperate to pay his financiers in mainland China. I found text messages between Mr. Yan and Hong Guo and court files in which Mr. Yan suggested his safety was at risk. When I questioned Hong Guo about these WeChat texts, she said she believed Mr. Yan had faced severe threats from loan sharks in China. Other text messages in court court files showed that Mr. Yan had tried to resolve his differences in the Minoru Boulevard land deal with Mr. Hsu. In January 2016, they discussed a meeting in Macau or Hong Kong. Mr. Yan, using a third-party transferee, you don't have to show your face, so that the actual payment will be in cash, the signing can actually take place in Hong Kong, Mr. Hsu texted to Mr. Yan. It's better our future discussions play, take place either face-to-face or via WeChat. If someone out of unfriendly intention complains to the regulatory authority that it will lead to intervention, delay, or termination. I had also obtained an extremely interesting snapshot of Hongguo's trust ledger for the of our deal. It showed that in July of 2013, RTY Financial was paid a fee of For a long time, I didn't understand how RTY earned such an enormous sum. This was just a small currency exchange shop, but uh, I did know from the Edwin Shekin Chang Chang case (laughs) that RTY Financial had connections to a criminal scheme that facilitated real estate investment from China. Could RTY Financial? be an underground banking conduit with connections to Guo's law firm. Finally, in 2020, when one of Han Guo's former employees sued her claiming unpaid wages, his court filing showed how RTY Financial fit into the puzzle. He presented a trust account ledger that showed dozens of transfers of about 50,000 per transaction had been wired from China into Guo's trust account For the Minoru Boulevard condo deal. All the names attached to these transfers appeared to be from mainland China. Some of the names appeared to match with major Richmond casino VIPs. The Bank of China was listed on some of these transactions, and so was RTY Financial. Legal Legal instructions from the British Virgin Island Company, Sparkle Long International said, I am writing to instruct you to please prepare a check to RTY Financial Limited in the amount of $560,000 as commission in relation to the purchase of shares for the Minoru Boulevard condo deal the conclusion to me was pretty clear the Edwin Shek Yin Chang case RTY facilitated an underground transaction that allowed a mainland China investor to deposit a $500,000 down payment in a West Vancouver bank account to purchase a Vancouver home. And in the Manorwood Boulevard deal, RTY Financial had facilitated transfers of millions into Honggo's legal trust, broken down into 50,000 per transaction so that mainland China investors could develop three parcels of land in downtown Richmond. It looked like RTY Financial was an underground banking node facilitating a blend of smurfing and crowdfunding on a giant scale. Many different people in China provided their names to record a legal $50,000 cash export out of China. And the money was aggregated in Canada for Chinese investors involved in condo developments. I reported on the Minoru Boulevard deal in the Vancouver Sun focusing on the case to highlight broader problems caused by a Supreme Court ruling that excluded Canadian lawyers from reporting suspicious financial transactions to FinTrack. Adam Ross, the author of a 2016 study for Transparency International showed that about 50% of Vancouver's luxury homes are owned through opaque legal structures, told me candidate lawyers had failed at self-policing. The law societies claim to have rules in place that prevent money laundering, but they are weak, non-transparent, and almost never enforced, Ross said. Unless the law societies demand more of their members and start enforcing those rules, billions of dollars will continue to be washed through lawyers' trust accounts without any consequences. Dot, dot, dot pressed his palms together and bowed slightly and I made the same gesture towards him. He spoke almost no English and I spoke no Chinese. So we stood steps apart and continued to smile and bow. I could sense he was trying to contain raw emotions. He said thank you and shook his fist to say keep fighting and then he walked into the BC Securities Commission hearing where he would testify about losing everything that mattered. At times I wanted to kill myself. Jiang sobbed He was shaking while on the witness stand. Every sentence out of his victim impact statement seemed wrenched from his guts. He was stopping and starting in between violent bursts of tears so that he could finally speak. It sounded like screaming. I think I've only cried twice while reporting a story. Once at the Vancouver province, I had to cover the funeral of a North Vancouver woman who died with her six-month-old daughter in a float plane crash off of Saturna Island. On rare occasions, the emotions of a story will overwhelm you, and I started to cry, taking down notes as Jiang testified in paroxysms of grief. It is just because of the two children that I that I can't die. He cried. Even my son said to me, "Didn't you say Canada is a country ruled by law?" This was April of 2017, eight years after Jiang and many investors from mainland China had signed up for a British Columbia immigration investment scheme run by a powerfully connected Vancouver businessman named Paul Oye. It ended badly for all Chinese investors but apparently no one suffered more than Jiang he said that he lost his family's life savings his wife's parents' savings, and his co-investor's money, all because of Paul Oye. I don't know how much longer I can live like this, John cried. He told the adjudicators his wife had lost all hope and had attempted suicide. She recovered but insisted on divorcing and leaving him to raise the children. She told him he had risked it all for a mirage in Canada. As I sat taking notes that day, I was struck by the tragedy of John's life. But I knew his case proved a crucial piece of my Vancouver model investigation. In my efforts to understand how underground bankers in China routed money into Vancouver real estate, by late 2016, I had about 90 percent of the picture. But I was missing testimony from investor from an investor willing to acknowledge using black market exchanges and also explain how international banks were involved. And Yi Shihinjiang who had nothing left to lose, had willingly provided that evidence. Not only that, he was motivated to appoint at the Canadian lawyers, politicians, and businesses that had facilitated the Vancouver model. The core of the immigration scam involved 60 foreign-based investment transfers for $13.3 million, routed through several of OIS, Canadian companies, and the Richmond law firm, a federal liberal pr- politician. Joe Pesci Salido The mainland China investors were were told they would become shareholders in a Vancouver area recycling business they claimed they would not they were told not only would they get rich but they would be fast tracked for Canadian citizenship because of Oye's high level political connections but the recycling plant was a bust and Oei ended up diverting at least five million of the investor funds for his own personal needs, the commission found. I found the misappropriated funds included the political donations of BC Premier Christy Clark. The commission lawyers said Oei had rubbed elbows with politicians to charm his Chinese investors. Oye also spent investor money on the signifiers of extreme wealth. He and his wife drove Bentleys and Lamborghinis and that helped establish his international reputation, and it worked. There was more than a little bit of Great Gatsby in O.A.'s story. He was featured very uncritically in a New Yorker magazine profile that called him the financial fixer of choice for the ultra-rich Chinese fuer day, seeking to invest in North America. The New Yorker piece captured Vancouver's decadence, but avoided the sordid criminality underlying it. A man named Li Xiao, the father of one of the pretty girls featured in the New Yorker piece, ended up shooting and butchering his relative Gang Yuan. Gang Yuan owed tens of millions of worth of mansions in Vancouver and West Vancouver. I also found he was a coal mining mogul tied to a big corruption case in Yunnan, and I obtained a massive link chart that indicated Gang Yuan, was one of the shady tycoons connected to a vast RCMP investigation into international wildlife poaching and casino money laundering junkets in BC. So Paul OA's story was just one of many examples where a reporter could scratch the surface on a Vancouver real estate story that made international headlines and run into underground banking and organized crime. But not all of Paul OA's clients were ultra-wealthy. Yi Cheng Jiang's case showed me that citizens with relatively modest wealth sometimes took an unfortunate risk to spare their savings out of China. They had to rely on organized crime, and sometimes they got burned. I chose to focus on Jiang among many other investors because his legal filings included confidential banking records that detailed HSBC wire transfers into Canada, and Jiang provided a ledger that indicated millions of suspicious transactions into the trust account of Joe Pesci Solito's law firm. So with the help of my Mandarin speaking colleague Chuck Chiang at the Vancouver Sun, we got Yicheng Chiang's side of the story. Jiang told us that when he met Paul Oewe in 2009, Oei and his beautiful wife exuded sophistication. They picked up Jiang in a Bentley and drove him to the Richmond office. Oewe showed the Chinese investors' clippings from a What's in magazine, article showing Oe receiving a BC Liberal Party award from Premier Chrissy Clark. The article named the immigration and recycling companies Oe used in his scheme. It also showed Oe and his wife posing with Donald Trump. Oh my God. And then mentioned their ties to the government. Very clearly, Jiang told us, Oe mentioned the BC Premier and high-level federal ministries had very special relationships with him and he mentioned Christy Clark, and he mentioned some MPs, including Joe Pesci-Solito. Other investors later corroborated what Jiang told us. OE said that this project received strong support from the provincial government, and he showed us a lot of photos of the lady premier, investor Wei Chen, uh, testified in the Securities Commission hearing. He said the BC government would use this project to go to China to attract immigrants. Jiang said the lure was set even deeper one night in Richmond when investors met with Owe and Pesci Salido at a Chinese seafood restaurant. It was the legal trust of Pesci, Pesci Salido and Company and the Richmond federal politician's stature that provided an extra layer of confidence, Jiang told us. Paul Owe ta- talked to us about this trust account and he told us this lawyer is a very famous lawyer in Vancouver and Canada, Jiang said. The problem was getting $4 million to invest in OA's recycling plant out of China and into Canada. Jiang told us he's persuaded to become a point man for six other investors like the crowdfunding concept we have in China. We talked to Paul Wei, and he said there's a rush to invest in this project, Jiang told us. This underground banking is very common in China for real estate buys outside of the country. So, the money gathered from seven investors would be wired to Canada, but under Jiang's name only, and a secret ledger filed in Jiang's lawsuit against Pesci Solito showed the names of the six other hidden investors and the amounts each one contributed. We just had to provide a list of the investors involved, then Oe would take his care of the immigration for us, Jiang said. This to me suggested a very opaque transaction that seemed to bend Canada's anti-money laundering laws to the breaking point. The only name in international banking records was Cheng Yang's. But who were the other six investors behind him? For the sake of argument, what if they were criminals or corrupt officials? The method of transaction would certainly allow officials to launder money into Canada anonymously, and according to a 2020 Radio Free Asia report, Jiang claimed his co-investors, indeed, were linked to the Chinese Communist Party. He claimed that after they banned him for their losses in the Cascade scheme, he and his children were targeted in China's fox hunt, an illegal covert operation by Chinese security forces that targets citizens accused of transferring assets to foreign countries. If the transactions running through the Pesci-Zalito's law firm, in fact, were meant to facilitate Canadian immigration for Chinese Communist Party members, that would add a whole new angle to the case. But let's just focus on the, on the underground banking aspect. If such a transaction goes into Canadian legal trust, but Canadian lawyers are not legally obliged to report to FinTrack, is it illegal? Yiqin Jiang was only following a secret financial tunnel from China to Canada that was wide open to countless other thanks to a Supreme Court ruling, plus he said he was induced to complete a transaction by OA, and he explained to us exactly how it worked. Now it's hard for us to transfer the money out of China individually because of the capital movement limits placed on outbound Chinese capital, Jiang said. So it's best to concentrate our cash into one place than go through an underground bank, which looks for opportunities to transfer funds out of Canada, out to Canada, whenever they can. Jiang said he transferred Chinese currency from himself and six other investors to a point person representing the Chinese underground bank. The underground banker who Zhang met through a relative changed the Yuan to US dollars at a prearranged exchange rate. So I transferred the Yuan either to that person directly or to whichever account he wanted us to direct the money to, Zhang explained. Then the bank would work their magic, I don't know how. Get the money out of China. US dollar funds would be transferred either to HSBC account in Hong Kong or in Canada. The magic touch. Other sources inform me, involves underground bankers who have relatives working in Macau casinos and Hong Kong banks who can slip money secretly into accounts. At the times in our interviews with Jiang, it seemed to me he might have been minimizing the seriousness of dealing with what he called community channel underground bankers. But during his BC Securities Commission testimony, he made the cost of dealing with organized crime more clear. This is the equivalent to what Hong Kong people call the U.S. dollar black market exchange transactions, Jiang told the commission. This is high risk, and in the beginning, we're not aware of the routes. So after we exchanged a certain amount, the person in the community ran away with the money, so we incurred a loss. After having some of their funds stolen by underground bankers, Jiang said that he learned according to the rules in the community, His investment group had to pay black market insurance fees of 15 to 25 percent per transaction. The fee would go up or down according to the current market conditions, Jiang told me. To me, this suggested that organized crime was making an unreal profit on the trillions sent out to China illegally since the 1990s, but it was Chinese citizens that paid the major fees on these underground transactions. The drug cartels operating in other countries were almost always a counterparty providing funds for these exchanges outside of China, paid almost no fees. So it was easy to understand what my police sources were telling me. These super criminals at the pinnacle of the Chinese underground banking networks wielded tremendous political power inside China and had powerful influence with foreign drug cartels too. They had to because they controlled so much money. Dot, dot dot So I had learned much from Ni Cheng Jiang's case about the ways that untouchable sums have been transferred into Canadian real estate from Hong Kong and China since the five dragons fled to Canada in the nineteen eighties. Was it tens of billions, hundreds of billions, or more? I can't answer that question, but I can say that whatever the sum. Much of the money has flowed through criminal financial plumbing that includes Canadian banks and benefit powerful drug cartels. I also noted that the Securities Commission saw how funds from Chinese investors flowed into the bank accounts of Paul Oi's immigration company, Canadian Manu, and $21,732 of these investor funds went from Canadian Manu accounts to the Pestalito and Company. Petrolito has repeatedly denied any wrongdoing in the civil cases involving Chinese investors, and he was not cited in the Securities Commission's case. I kept digging, though. I found that then-Premier Chrissy Clark and her BC liberals had received $37,888 in political donations that came directly from investor funds for Cascade, OA's failed recycling plant company. Line items from OA's account showed December 1, 2011, a transaction for Premier Christy Clark, sick dinner to VIP. The accountant was questioned by a commission lawyer. Well, I know that he knows people in Liberal Party, so I guess it's party's promotions. The accountant said he did tell me he mentioned that it was for Cascade for promotion. So was this political donation funded by money laundering or of a less underground banking transfer from China? That wasn't a question for the Securities Commission to answer, but it might be a good question for the Cullen Commission to look into. The BC Liberal Party said that it would return the funds after OA was, was cited for fraud in the BC Securities Commission's case. There was also testimony from multiple sources pointing to casino flow through transactions from China and Hong Kong. For example, one Cascade investor a Ms. Yu Po Chu of Hong Kong had provided almost $7 million to OA in addition to the Cascade investment. Accounting showed Yu Po Chu's investor repayments from Cascade were made in the names of other people, and that the payments were made to Las Vegas casinos. And why were investments from a Vancouver recycling plant flowing through Las Vegas? These were. Money that were paid to Las Vegas. away account testified it was paid upon Yu Po Chu's request because she goes down to Las Vegas quite often, and she wanted the money to go back to Hong Kong. So she asked Mr. Wei to transfer the money and paid it to Las Vegas. Records show that Yu Po Chu alone there was two two thousand two hundred thousand eighty eight dollars and two hundred ninety one. $288,291 in payments made to casino cage depositories at the Wynn, the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM International. Does that, as an accountant, does it raise any red flags for you? Where you see hundreds of thousands of dollars in personal payments to Las Vegas casinos purportedly to repay investors, a commission lawyer asked you always, accountant. Well, I do think about it. But I just left it in Mr. Oway's hands, she answered. She answered, sir. I think about it, too, because I later found that a private real estate lender in Vancouver connected to suspicious transactions in BC Lottery Corp casinos and Paul Jen's network of loan sharks had also provided a large loan to Paul Owe. Owe told me he was forced to take the BC casino VIP loan to cover his legal costs in the Cascade case. The other thing I think about is. The access that Paul Wei had to elite Canadian politicians. What does this imply about Canada's democracy? Was away trying to buy favor for his recycling plant project? Was he trying to peddle influence in Canada's investor immigration program? Did politicians flock to Wei because of his political fundraising prowess and his access to wealth from China? Conversely, did his access to Chinese investors result from his ties with Canadian politicians? Perhaps all of the above. Guanxi, all around. I looked into the donation records and found Paul O'A and his wife had donated over sixty seven thousand to the B C Liberals. And since twenty fourteen, when Justin Trudeau took over the federal Liberals, the couple had shoveled eight thousand four hundred seventy seven dollars into party coffers. O'A had made smaller donations to the Conservatives, and O'A also informed me that at least one federal Conservative. Alice Wong was supportive of the Cascade project, and Wong's office, however, strongly denied links to Paul Oae's case. Also in July of 2015, OA's company sponsored a pre-election luncheon in Richmond featuring Justin Trudeau. Oae oh, shared the, ta- the head table with future Prime Minister and introduced him to the gathered crowd and embraced Trudeau. Trudeau's message trumpeting a middle-class voter platform missed the mark, with the Lamborghini driving set setting, watching his speech. Meanwhile, Yi and Jiang told us that after Trudeau, Trudeau after Trudeau was elected prime minister, Oe sent Jiang messages and photos on WeChat of Owe hugging Trudeau and all these celebratory for photos. To me, the intention was obvious. It was to tell me not to mess with him in Canada, Jiang told us. It was like, look at my relationship with the Prime Minister. We are like buddies. You were just a Chinese man without even an immigrant status in Canada. Don't dare come to Canada to cause trouble. So, by summer of 2017, I had a body of work compiled. To me, the money flooding in from China raised flags of serious corruption obviously in China, but also in Canada. Increasingly, I was asked to talk about my findings, and I agreed to attend an anti-money laundering conference in Victoria to talk about the Yi Chen Jiang case. And for months, sporadically, I had been exchanging emails with Ross Alderson. He had mentioned the names of Paul King Jin and Kwok Chung Tam. And in August of 2017, Alderson had pointed me to a BC civil forfeiture case involving an RCMP investigation that targeted a massive mansion on a piece of Richmond farmland. Alleged Big Circle Boys heavyweight Peter Lapsang Pang was accused of running the Richmond Underground Casino in connection with Jen's network and Pang's relative from Markham, Ontario. I found that Peter Pang... And his crew from Guangdong were ranked up there with Kwok Tam and Chilapsi in the hierarchy of big circle boys with long histories in Canada. It all pointed to a dirty loop of cash, casino chips, and Macau VIPs circulating between lottery corp casinos and illegal casinos in Richmond and Markham, with opiates, opioids and weapons trafficking and real estate money laundering all mixed in. In Victoria Alderson and I had met for coffee before I gave my speech. Among other things, he told me I was doing important reporting for Canada. He talked a little bit about his meetings with Calvin Krusty. And when I returned to Vancouver, he arranged to transfer the highly confidential lottery court files that enabled me to pull all of my previous Vancouver model reporting together. It was the last piece of data I needed to decode Paul King Jin's network. And that is it. So that's it for this chapter. It says your browser has requested a part of the book without some expected tra- try going back. <laughs> we are now having a technical issue. Okay. So I mean, we have read for an hour and forty minutes. I think it's enough. If we have to do a chapter twelve, part two let's fix the page here Oh um, we are gonna we are gonna call it for tonight. This is the longest chapter I have read in this exchange but it is really 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 informative for pulling it all together So thank you for joining the unsanctioned citizen and listening to chapter 12 which may have to be chapter 12. Be, um, to get to the bottom of the Paul King Gen Network we'll see you on Friday wait I said I would take a call Josh you're the only one here would you like to call in and discuss what we have spoken so long about <laughs> I think he does go ahead Josh
0: no, I, it's the longest chapter. It really has like, been
1: the longest.
0: And I am tired. Uh, <laughs> my, my ADHD <laughs> is really triggered. Really? Um, well, that's a long time for me to focus. So I, I listened to your show yesterday with you and Blody and the North guy.
1: So that oh, was you mean that, that, that was, was good. On Monday, or what was it? Yeah. Like today's Wednesday. It must have been a Monday.
0: Yeah, I don't keep track of the days anymore. Um, okay, so, so, yeah, Okay, so, so that's like three hours of content on this stuff. Um, <laughs> it's just a lot. Um, you, you the main no, I don't! And, but when, when I'm the only person that joins, I'm like, now that I'm in here, I feel trapped.
1: Oh, don't feel that way. I really, I really think you're, you're doing great. I really appreciate your presence. So, uh, but don't, don't ever feel like you're commissioned like this. This is a reading. And I know people, no. it's like a one-way concert. <laughs> so don't, I, don't feel that way.
0: <laughs> every, you're giving yourself way too much credit. Because you're okay, butchering those names And that is hilarious I'm messing with you no, but, The butchering the names is, is hilarious uh, um, um. So Anyway I'm going to let you go It's been a long night My thoughts are jumbled I'll probably never pull them together um, You need to come okay. on my show When I do a hemp show though That's all there is to it
1: Oh great Yes We've been waiting for you to like Get, get the gump up to like do the hemp show So yeah let's do it do the hem show. I'll, I'll come on and, um, and uh, be a visitor.
0: You'll terrorize me. Fantastic. That's what I was. I was looking for somebody to terrorize me on my own show like I do you.
1: <laughs> I probably won't be that fierce. I don't know like a ton no. about hem. You know, I'll be willing to like learn and, and ask questions. How about that?
0: And we completely agree on the indigenous stuff. So I think that we'll oh, have fun with it. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Right. Like you know, I right. Typically, people don't know a lot. So when they offer anything, it's like wow, you know, it's it's always a learning journey for me.
0: Ditto. All right, I'm gonna let you go. It's, uh, okay. Great job. Right. Yeah. Uh, long, uh, and, yeah. yeah uh, have a good one. We'll talk to you soon.
1: You too. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. Yep. All right. So that that's it. That's the end of the trip on this one. Occam's Razor. Four tonight. There will be a 12A. Um. And then, uh, oh my gosh. Bloddy dot. Blatidot, do you want to say like two sentences before we close this, this shop out? Ah, there he is. Hey, Blatidot! Have you been listening?
0: Not really, I just got in. That's what I wanted to tell you. I, I seem to be getting all your stuff like too late. So I constantly have to be going into the app, the, the calling app to check. Who's on? I don't know if they're being malicious, or is it, is it those bots, those AI? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you turn
1: models? up your microphone? I can't hear you very well.
0: Oh, hold on, let me step out. No, what I'm, what I'm basically saying is that I'm, I'm having trouble uh, getting the shows, like the, the notification. Oh. I, I, get them from other, I get them from other podcast speakers, but I don't get them from yours. Like, you know, you're live, join Shayla. It's just, I, I don't know, I'm questioning this thing. I don't know how they're working you know it. I, don't know they
1: I mean, if you're at, the I'll... second person who says something, I want you to say something to Charlie Weiser.
0: Charlie Weiser?
1: Something.
0: Well, Definitely. right now, Charlie Weiser is- I didn't
1: know, I mean, I, I didn't know.
0: Yeah, right now, Charlie Weiser is not that wise. Really, he's not that wise.
1: You know, David Ugh. Sachs is on the network too. He, he runs the entire rig. You know, this is wow. his baby, so you can you can say something to him.
0: And I'm pretty sure they don't have problems with uh, other big labels like Brianna J or or Glenn Greenwald or any of those. Yeah,
1: any of the leftists. Uh, you know, this is this is a leftist dominated network. But the fact that I'm I'm kind of a uh, you know an outlier. I'm a you know I'm a libertarian, but I'm you know whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well,
0: but anyway, that's that's why if I miss your program. I mean, I, I wish I could see it in the morning, but if I wake up too late, uh, you know, I go to sleep late and all that stuff. So right now, that I'm not working. Don't my work worry too daytime, much,
1: Bloody, because you can always get it on demand. You know, like this is chapter reading. This is this is a reading.
0: Uh huh.
1: Of the of the willful blindness.
0: I know. I've I've only been, I've only gotten a, a little bit from when you're reading and when you're actually. That's why I don't even call in. I'll I'll be on board if you see me, and yeah. I'll be listening to the story, the narrative you're giving. You're narrating and stuff. So it's kind usually of like I'll, true
1: crime story time. I know, huh?
0: <laughs> like like film noir, huh? Like that French uh, crime like uh, noir that they call the dark stories or something.
1: Yeah. It's like noir.
0: Noir right, Right. Yeah, noir, noir, noir. yeah. Noir. Yeah, like, like that. It's very well known up there. For all French lovers. They 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 got especially the older films from fifties, sixties and uh seventies. They, they specialize in that. They still got a it's couple like of smoke them now.
1: And like a, a slow turning fan, black and white.
0: Exactly. The question is, who makes the true film noir? Is it America makes the true crime series, or is it France? Who Who is number one? That could only be number one out of two or three. Only one you know will what? stand, and LA the other will fall. Film
1: noir is the best film noir. That's my opinion.
0: The best. I I seen I seen enough French acting to to like it. They they are they got their own thing. They well, got
1: I mean their it is thing. their own thing. It is their thing.
0: Yeah, and they're much different than the U.S. And they do it at a far lesser budget than what we what what uh, Hollywood uh, you know the big studios here in Hollywood spend.
1: Yeah, I've seen so, I've only seen like one in, from France and it's terrifying. The Nora,
0: believe, believe it or not, uh, here here in uh, L.A. we're going to be getting the. Uh, Called Co- uh, French Film Festival in September now. It used to be in April, now it's in September. I hope they're not too restrictive there with their stupid COVID COVID passport.
1: Sometimes I miss movies. Guys...
0: Sheila. <laughs> yeah. Sheila, do you guys you guys I'm pretty sure you guys have the international film festivals up there in Texas, right?
1: We do. We do. It's just not it's really not the same, bro. It's just not
0: the same. Oh man! Oh, I know. Wait. I guess I guess the lefties get all the goodies. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have
1: to be the lefties. I mean, it's just you know when you get up to get there, it's like it's just film. You're sitting in a dark room with a box of popcorn and
0: But but for me, for me, for the for the for me for the for the French Film Festival that whole week that whole week seven days of it, I just can't get enough. I'm into, into the small film, short film. Uh, films that didn't come out, you know, uh, maybe they're going to come out, stuff like that, short clips, all the way into the movies that they got. It's like
1: going into I'm... an air-conditioned cave during the worst part of the summer, like the hottest part
0: of the summer. <laughs> well, it, actually, before it was in April, but due to COVID, they, they started last year in September. So hopefully, again, I hope they're not too restrictive, and I hope they allow freedom, everybody to come in without their BS COVID thing. And it'll be this uh, September again. Colcola.com City of light City of angels <laughs> Boy like that's really me, it's a, For you Well to, to me it's a treat Because I was taking French classes I only got to the third level And It's not enough I, I gotta learn more I'm not an expert But I, I don't know It's just me As okay. a conservative man I I don't know I'm attracted to all that The way the French are And I know they're arrogant About it too
1: I don't know man I mean I can't make Generalizations about that stuff you know i'm i when i was in la i became a little bit of a Francophile myself but um, you know well
0: i think i think ben franklin right saying... now i'm
1: just on texas and doing things that are texas well
0: well well texas is your France, then. there's also something called paris Fra- paris texas right
1: there is paris texas is a, is kind of like a a mexican enclave
0: oh how crazy we had the greatest relationship with them they conquered us we kicked their butt and they still love us <laughs> and we still love them back <laughs> it's so
1: weird it's
0: so weird I-, I think ben franklin said it best everyone has two nations and one of them is France. is that <laughs> true uh, shayla yeah
1: you're is not that wrong true?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong <laughs> right <laughs> that's
1: totally on point <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, no, I'm getting like historical here.
1: They're at the last minute. They're like, you know, can I cook for you or something? <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, if it's a, if it's a chef and he's bringing all the cuisine, bring yeah, it on. Yeah, I know it's, it's a small part. The only thing I don't I don't agree is to a small where the
1: small part. And nobody's Definitely. gonna shut down a French kitchen. Are you kidding me? There, and, there, if, will, and if and if there will be people, lots of slapping. Just get out. Don't stop the kitchen. Exactly. exactly.
0: And you know what? If they, if they have, like, that actor Bradley Cooper uh, at the helm, oh, and someone, like, maybe Hell's Kitchen, what's his name, uh, Gordon Ramsay, Ring it on. I just want to eat good food. Awesome. I'm not,
1: not going to dwell here with, with the actor, Lord Jess. You know, I'd love to sit here and talk to you about it. Uh, but, you know, stay tuned and listen to, to the, the evidences here of, of Sam Cooper's stuff. I mean, it's really a brilliant assembly of facts. Um, you know, if you are still listening anywhere in the world to this podcast, to, to me and Blotty, uh, please support the podcast any way you can with uh, with a subscription here on Colin. Uh, you can actually catch it on uh, on Podomatic. Uh, most of the, the, the render of the, the reading will be pushed out onto Podomatic automatic um, you can also subscribe to my Substack, Liberty in many directions I'm trying to get subscribers to Liberty in many directions so here's what I've decided to do I'm gonna have to try to do a promo and then run it you know at the beginning of the of the of the readings, so bloody um, would you come back when we're actually doing uh, a reading tomorrow at 7:20? Would you do that? Could you do that? You know, we do that at at 7:20 um, p.m. Central Standard Time every uh, every weekday. But we're taking a couple days out this week, just just Tuesday and just Thursday, because I have civic duties um, that I must commit to. Uh, It's not going to be like every week, but we're going to go down to City Hall and check it out because we have some goals, anti-surveillance goals, anti-biometrics goals. So um, God bless you, bloody, but we're going to have to end this, bro. Come back. Come back and see us. All right, Ellie?
0: Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call-In. Please stay in touch.
1: We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.